Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits comfortably on the left. Hi, I'm Danielle Moody, former educator and recovering lobbyist. But today I'm an unapologetic woke commentator on America's threats to democracy. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try and make sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears. Welcome back to another bonus episode of The New Abnormal, and we thank you so much for being here. We hope you're enjoying this holiday season, because we know we are. What a special guest we have for you today. Stuart Reed, executive editor at Foreign Affairs. He's here to talk about his new book, The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. But first, let's have some fun. Are you guys ready to listen to some Happy New Year clips? Clips. Clips. End of the year clips. Yay, clip it. <laughs> Since I know you guys love listening to these so much, I had some that fell through the cracks in recent weeks, and there's just so much bad stuff that we missed some. But luckily, I saved them for you. Oh, thank so, you, Jesse. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> let's start with... This is Fox News' Laura Ingram, whose clips lead me to believe her grip on reality is getting less and less tethered to the one the rest of us exist in. And I don't think she even started with the best hand dealt, but uh, here we have uh, her uh, discussing, uh, let me check notes, uh, speeding limits. Yes. Love the EU. They love Europe. They always want to be in Europe. They want to do the same thing here in the United States. And forget your constitutional rights. Those can be damned. Even your movement controlled. The National Transportation Safety Board is recommending that all new vehicles get technology that makes speeding, quote, more difficult or completely impossible, following in Europe's footsteps. Joining me now, Ned Ryan, American Majority CEO and founder. Ned, this is why they love the lockdowns. They like to keep us all moving as little as possible permanently. Yeah. Uh, what, what's Correct. Mayor Pete going to do here, Ned? What does Mayor Pete want? <laughs> Back on the bike for him? Well, yeah, yeah. Mayor, Mayor Pete, little Pete, and uh, the rest of the nanny staters want to dictate. It's almost 280 million Americans that have a driver's license. Uh, how fast they're going to be able to drive. And there, there are. You know what? Like, I think that their next campaign should be to go break into cars, rip out seat belts, and just burn them. <laughs> Let's just do that. But, and you know what? Don't stop there. Don't stop there. Go for the brakes too. Because fuck them. Like, let's just do it. They are so fucking stupid. I don't understand how this is allowed to exist. I don't understand how this is allowed to exist. This station, I don't get it. The only thing that I ask for, not even to take these people off of the air, just at the beginning, the middle, and the end of their broadcast that it says for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> This is not fun. And like, and just have that blacked out on the screen with somebody saying it just to make sure beginning, middle and end. This is for entertainment purposes only. This is not news. That's it. 
and they can say whatever the fuck they want. I feel a little sorry for Laura Ingram. Really? Hear me out. She is out there every night saying batshit things. But in comparison to Jesse Waters and The Five and and some of the other shows on there, she doesn't she just doesn't get the juice. She doesn't get mm. the clips. She doesn't get the, you know, the constant posting on media and sites like that. And so I so yes, I feel kind of bad for her. She's out there putting she's putting in the work. She's putting in the work saying crazy shit and she's just not getting a lot of attention. On any other network, she would be the lead crazy person. And on Fox, like she's barely top five, I think. <laughs> That's got to drag on you after a while. I think you have a good point here. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of a uh, lack of tether to reality, uh, we now go to he who wears three shirts at all times, the human skin tag, Steve Bannon. Here he wants to talk about what Trump's new tax policy should be. Well, this is why I say let's have massive tax increases on billionaires. Of the Forbes 500, 499 of them are not MAGA, right? Not MAGA at all. In fact, the large proportion are, are, are radical progressives. They made this mess through the, through the uniparty. Why shouldn't they pay for it? His idea of how taxation works is based on what your ideology is. Mm-hmm. That's one way to do it. I mean. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe next we can tax people more who wear multiple shirts. <laughs> why are we taking clothes away from those that have none? No, we need a shirt tax. I like this nanny state idea. Like you're walking into Costco, the greeter at the thing checks your card. The next one's like, oh, three shirts. Got to pay a tax. Got to pay a yeah. tax. I'm trying to think if I ever wear three. I'm a two shirt guy sometimes, but three. Undershirts are normal. Okay. <laughs> Tank tops, normal. <laughs> Wearing three fucking collared shirts is what a serial killer does. <laughs> it's serial killer and George Santos. Like, it, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room. All right, I'm trying to figure out which of these horrible clips to put, play before the end. I thought this was the holiday episode. <laughs> like, this is New Year's. You ain't got nothing from an elf or a Santa. Or... I do at the end. I do at the end. Okay, I'm going to apologize in advance for this one. Oh, Here boy. we have resident quote-unquote comedian for Fox News, Greg Gutfeld, on The Five, giving what might be the dumbest take I've heard in a while. I'm sorry. They're in trouble, and here's why. They took the pro-Hamas cause, and they slipped it right into the BLM costume. Never mind the radicalism, the violence, the sexual atrocity. They took the costume of the oppressed and they switched it. Now the Jews are the oppressor. It's not young people they should worry about in their party. They should worry about Jews finally seeing the handwriting on the wall. You are the new oppressor. You are the new cops. You are the new Derek Chauvin. And Hamas is the new George Floyd, you know. We desperately need to have a correction in the Democrat Party because, you know, we've been saying this for years, a strong Democrat Party makes for a strong country. We need to have two sides of the same coin, right? It, 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 they have to be based on common values, but you can't have common values if you separate everybody into identity boxes and then turn them on each other. And that's what the Democratic Party is suffering from right now. Bravo. Oh, he slipped up the last time and said Democratic Party instead of Democrat Party. Mm. I'm exhausted. I was just waiting for Andy no, to go. No, go no, ahead. no. Please go ahead. <laughs> nope. Go. <laughs> I don't know who that was, but I guess it's some guy on Fox News. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's gone. I mean, he's gone. He is 100% gone. 
And I don't know if he believes all the shit he says now or he just knows where his bread is buttered and I don't really care. It doesn't matter. Uh, he, he's just gone. I honestly think that there has to be a brain breakdown that's happening because this is at a stage of psychosis that I honestly like it's not even funny. It's just it's so insane. And I'm like, their brains need to be studied. Like right now, I'm reading <laughs> the book that came out in 2014, Sapiens. Mm. And like, you know, what is the theory? Were there actual multiple different human species that were on the planet at the same time or not? And like, you can find DNA and fossils. And I'm just like, MAGA brains are going to be what is looked at like a thousand years from now and them say, yeah, there was definitely a mind parasite. Like there was definitely like, how did they miss this? These people are not fucking well at all. Are you saying there's an unwoke mind virus, Daniel? <laughs> oh God, just take me out. Look, money and fame are hell of a drugs. Okay, I'm going to try to make it up to you too for that one. Are you? Yeah, I am. I am. I, re I really am. Trust me. Come on. Oh, God. This really is a palate cleanser. Uh, this is Xander Morix. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, at a Sarasota, Florida town meeting confronting Bridget Ziegler, a co-founder of Moms for Liberty, who you may know from the recent news of her and her husband being outed for having a threesome. And then it turns out that her husband is accused of raping the woman involved in said threesome. So he goes to the meeting to talk to her about her job. Our first ever interaction was when you retweeted a hate article about me from The Nationalist while I was a Sarasota County school student. You are a reminder that some people view politics as a service to others, while some view it as an opportunity for themselves. On this board, you have spent public funds that could have been used to increase teacher pay, to change our district lines for political gain, remove books from schools, target trans and queer children, erase black history, and elevate your political career, all while sending your children to private schools because you do not believe in the public school system that you've been leading. My question is why doesn't an elected official using our money to harm our students and our teachers for her gain seems to matter as much to us as her having a threesome does. Bridget Ziegler, you do not deserve to be on the Sarasota County School Board, but you do not deserve to be removed from it for having a threesome. That defeats the lesson we've been trying to teach you, which is that a politician's job is to serve their community, not to police personal lives. So, to be extra clear, Bridget, you deserve to be fired from your job because you are terrible at your job. <laughs> yes. Not because you had sex with a woman. Ooh. <laughs> Bravo. Yeah. Bravo. Good for him. Oh, my God. Good for him. If that wasn't a fucking read. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Try to live your life where no one can say that about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what did they say? Like, live your life in a way that people are not rejoicing at your demise yeah. or your death. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, everything that he said was facts. Who gives a shit who you are sleeping with? You people are the only ones that care who other people are sleeping with. We do not. We care about book bans and racism and discrimination and homophobia and transphobia and spreading of hate. And like, he's absolutely right. 
You deserve to lose your job, but we should be clear as to why you're losing your job. And it's not that. Oh, my God. These people make me sick. There's a thing he said that just needs to be like a universal thing, and that is that you cannot sit on a school board if you send your kids to private school. 100%. Should be an automatic disqualifier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fact that that is not in every state's governing body is a failure on our part. Yeah, I, I don't I don't get it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience, and it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries, and it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash The New Abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash The New Abnormal. Patrice Lumumba was the first elected prime minister of the Congo, but his leadership lasted for only 10 weeks in 1960 before he was deposed by a CIA-backed military junta. His ouster and eventual assassination had long-lasting ramifications not only for that African country, but for how the Cold War played out globally and for the reputation of the United Nations. And now, executive editor at Foreign Affairs magazine Stuart Reed has written a gripping new book called The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. He joins us now. Stuart, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So let me set the stage. In 1878, King Leopold II of Belgium decides he wants to own himself a piece of Africa, and he sends Henry Morton Stanley, of Dr. Livingstone, I presume, fame, back to that continent, where he obtains the quote-unquote signatures of illiterate tribal chiefs on documents that give the rights to their land to Leopold. 
And that land becomes the Congo Free State under Leopold's personal ownership and rule. Rule so horrific that you describe it in the book as earning a place in the pantheon of human atrocities. In 1908, Leopold sells the Congo Free State to Belgium, which is slightly better for the Congolese, but still pretty damn bad. Jumping ahead to the post-World War II 1940s, a young man named Police Lumumba leaves his home and relocates to Stanleyville, the third largest city in the Belgian Congo. He figures out that climbing the colonial ladder, as you put it, has its rewards, so he improves his French, becomes a government clerk, and starts working his way up the chain. By the late 1950s, he's kind of a big deal politically, which, and obviously I've left out so much fascinating detail that's in your book, brings us to 1960. Congo wins its independence, and Lumumba is elected prime minister. So, I'll start there. A key part of your book is that you give Lumumba agency. Generally speaking, it feels like we talk only about what was done to him by external forces, which, granted, is an unbelievably huge part of the story. But you also talk about his own shortcomings and the mistakes he himself made. With that in mind, let's start with Lumumba's speech on June 30th, 1960. What was the setting, and what did he say? So that was the day that the Congo was becoming independent from Belgium. There was a handover ceremony and King Baudouin, the king of the Belgians, was in the capital of what was soon to be his former colony there to hand over power to the Congolese. And he gives this very patronizing speech. Um, I mean, the whole Belgian colonial project had been one of paternalism and this was a continuation of that. And so he tells the Congolese that they should be thankful for all that the Belgians have done for them and warns them not to mess things up by changing the structures around. And the president of the Congo, a man named Joseph Kasavubu, responds with this polite speech thanking uh, the Belgians. And Lumumba, who's he's been elected prime minister but is not on the schedule to speak that day, he stands up and goes to the podium unannounced, he's not on the program, and gives this really passionate speech that has gone down in the annals of sort of post-colonial history. And it's a speech in which he's telling the Belgians what the Congolese really thought of them and what daily life was like for the Congolese, the insults that they endured day and night, the racism that affected every aspect of daily life. And he tells this all to King Baudouin and the other visiting dignitaries. And it's seen as this great offense. And he's he sparks a sort of diplomatic incident and the Belgians threaten to leave. And what's interesting about it is the speech is a remarkable speech. It's completely true. It helped him politically, but it did aggravate the Belgians at the ceremony. And he was forced to give this sort of backpedaling toast at lunch. But it would sort of go down as this key moment where he pissed off the Belgians and they were done with him at that point. First of all, it's a fantastic speech. I mean, reading it in the book, I don't know what his delivery was like, but reading it was just jaw-droppingly good. And as you said, it was truthful and it was brutally honest. So he gives this speech in front of the king of the Belgians and also in front of representatives from the UN and countries worldwide. And they sort of leave there with maybe an opinion of him that is not super favorable? Yeah, I mean, in fact, in the months before this, Lumumba had, in fact, already sort of broken with the Belgians. This was, this was in, in many ways, the culmination of a long brewing row between Lumumba and his former colonial masters. The U.S. Embassy, um, there was a U.S. ambassador in Belgium, a man named William Burden, who was very pro-Belgian and basically passing on the Belgian line to Americans. And so the cables back and forth from Brussels to D.C. are full of assessments of Lumumba that he's unreliable, that he's erratic 
charismatic, that he's opportunistic, and so on. So at that point, American officials were starting to form their opinion of Lumumba. The speech on June 30th didn't help. But even then, I think they were keeping an open mind about what this new leader would be like. Okay, so that's sort of the situation worldwide, and that's on June 30th. Five days later, on July 5th, the Congolese army known as the Force Publique mutinies. Why did they do this? The Force Publique had an all-white, all-Belgian officer corps, a holdover from colonialism. And so, as you can imagine, the black rank and file was none too happy to, you know, ostensibly have independence, yet every day they're saluting their white officers. There were also problems of low pay and all the overtime they had been putting in recently. So they were very disgruntled. They revolted against their white officers and started roaming the streets, terrorizing the white population that had stayed on after independence. And that's really where the the Congo crisis, as it would become known, begins with this mutiny. Okay. And so Lumumba refuses requests from Belgium to allow Belgian troops to try to quell the mutiny. But a man named Moise Tuchumbe welcomes them when they arrive in Katanga, where he is the provincial governor. Talk about Tuchumbe and the province of Katanga, because this is just an unbelievably critical point in the story. Yeah, so the the Belgians intervene without Congolese permission, and they're parachuting down all over the Congo. And in the province of Katanga, they are, as you mentioned, welcomed. So Katanga is the mineral-rich province in the southeast of the Congo, and it had always been somewhat separate from the rest of the colony, had a different administrative structure. It was the, the cash cow produced the vast majority of the revenues for the state. And Moise Chambe, the leader of that province, on July 11th, he announces that his province has seceded from the rest of the Congo. And in this, he's supported by the Belgians who view his province as sort of the last toehold of Belgian influence in the Congo. And this becomes the main sticking point, the great frustration that Lumumba has, that this province, which is the revenue-producing one, has broken off from the rest of the country. And most of Lumumba's actions in the months that follow can be explained by his desire to bring Katanga back into his country. Okay, so in fairly short order, the Belgian troops control most of the Congo, Lumumba appeals to the UN for help, and the Secretary General at the time, Dag Hammarskjöld, flies there, as does the great Ralph Bunch, but they're unable to accomplish much. And Lumumba, who had been abroad trying to get money and support from various countries, including the U.S., he returns and declares a state of emergency, which you describe as a remarkable authoritarian turn for him. Yeah. So just to back up a little bit. So the UN peacekeeping operation is this massive operation. The UN's never done anything like it before. And the goal is to bring stability to Congo. And Lumumba has invited them in, asked for help, but he he gets frustrated with their inability to go into Katanga and bring that province back in. So as you mentioned, he goes to the US for help and doesn't get it. And when he's back in Congo, he does have something of an authoritarian turn. He closes down newspapers, some opposition politicians are arrested and so on. So that was a surprising turn for a man who came of age politically fighting against Belgian colonialism and bristling under its censorship and so on. His argument was that he was being undermined by Belgian propaganda beaming in from across the river in the French Congo, where after expelling the Belgian diplomats, they had, after having been expelled, they had sort of set up shop. So he did have this, this brief authoritarian turn. Spoiler alert, it's nowhere near as authoritarian as <laughs> what just weeks and months later Mobutu would do, but he was criticized for it uh, heavily by the United States, who 
thought he, you know, some officials thought he was becoming a dictator and so on. And so, okay, so now we have to talk about Joseph Mobutu. You point out that Lumumba had been warned about Mobutu and pretty much ignored those warnings that he was possibly working with Belgian intelligence, possibly other external intelligence organizations. Ignoring those warnings doesn't work out very well for Lumumba. Mobutu now controls the Congolese army, which used to be the force publique, but is now known as the Armée Nationale Congolaise. In September of 1960, Mobutu declares a coup, and a few months later, he arrests Lumumba. And in January of 1961, he transfers Lumumba to Katanga, where he is brutally murdered. So, Again, I've alighted so much from the book, but I want to talk about America's role in all of this. And you write about various times where phrases like changing the scenery in the Congo were used by the State Department. In August 1960, you say that the White House authorized a secret CIA program to, quote, replace the Lumumba government by constitutional means. And you call this a watershed moment for the agency. Why? Because that was the first time in the Congo they had moved beyond mere intelligence collection to actual covert action, meaning changing politics on the ground. The broader context here is, is the Cold War. And the U.S. thought that, or certain U.S. officials thought that Lumumba was turning the Congo communist. The evidence for that was extremely thin. As we discussed, he had asked the U.S. for help, been rebuffed. And it was then and only then that he turned to the Soviets for military assistance. He wanted to invade Katanga and, and bring that back into the fold. What happened is that events intervened. And so Lumumba is ousted from power. He's fired by the president of the Congo. Congo, encouraged by the CIA to do so. Then Mobutu steps in to replace both the president and the prime minister, Lumumba, and announces that he's taking power in a military coup that was financed by the CIA and arranged by the CIA. And all the while, there's this bizarre assassination plot moving forward, which begins on August 18th, 1960 at the White House when Eisenhower essentially issues an order to assassinate Lumumba, although he doesn't say it in those exact words. And the CIA gets to work planning a bizarre operation involving poisons, which are flown to the Congo and supposed to be put in Lumumba's food or toothpaste. That plot sort of Peters out because, as you mentioned, Lumumba's been overthrown and he's under house arrest now and the CIA can't get access to his house. But the U.S. tried many different lines of action to try and get rid of Lumumba. And as we can perhaps talk about in a second, his ultimate death, there was a key American role in. Yeah. Before we get to that, I, I just want to bring up, because my jaw dropped at this part in the book, you mentioned the CIA plot to assassinate Lumumba involved poisoning. And all of a sudden, there is the name Sidney Gottlieb. And anyone who has done any research or looked into the CIA program known as MK Ultra recognizes that name instantly. Yeah, that just blew my mind. Okay, so as you know, as you say, events kind of took over. We did not directly assassinate Lumumba. But as you say, Eisenhower did call for this assassination. We learned this from the, the church committee. In the mid-1970s, we learned that the CIA had this plan, and at one point it was in motion. But yeah, you, you talked about a gentleman who worked for the CIA who was stationed in the Congo, who, while he didn't help assassinate Lumumba, he did his best to make sure we didn't stop it. Yeah, so the timing is important here. It's December 1960. Eisenhower is on the way out. Kennedy has been elected president and will take office on January 20th, 1961. And there are signs from the Kennedy camp that the new administration 
will pursue a more pro-Lumumba policy in the Congo. First, he was under house arrest. Then he was uh, he escaped and was captured and thrown in a military prison. So Lumumba is in a military prison, and there's a real fear on the ground in Congo that he will be liberated from prison and restored to power as prime minister. This is a viable potential thing that might happen. And Mobutu, who's in charge as the military leader, is worried about this. And so is Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief in the Congo, who was instrumental in removing Lumumba and supporting Mobutu as his replacement. And so a plan develops by Mobutu and his henchmen to transfer to Lumumba to send him away to his death, to send him to a province where it's known that he'll almost certainly be killed upon landing. And On January 14th, 1961, Mobutu or someone from his circle tells Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, about this plan. And Devlin does two things, or rather doesn't do two things. One, he doesn't tell Mobutu not to do this. And in the context of their relationship where um, Devlin is handing over suitcases of cash, this is essentially a green light. He's advising him on all matters about being in charge and doesn't tell him to save Lumumba's life and not send him to his death. And two, Devlin keeps Washington out of the loop. So even as he's telling them about other twists and turns of the daily events going on in Congo, he deliberately sits on the most important explosive piece of news in the country, which is that Lumumba is about to be killed. Why does he do this? Because he understood correctly that at that point with the transition, presidential transition going on, Washington would tell him to put the brakes on this operation because there were to be no new big decisions in the Congo. These were policies that should be decided by the new administration, not the Eisenhower administration in its final days. So he doesn't tell Washington about that. And on January 17th, 1961, Lumumba's flown to the breakaway province of Katanga and killed shortly after landing. And Kennedy's inaugurated three days later. It's unreal. Look, at the top, I said that Lumumba's ouster and eventual assassination had long-lasting ramifications, not only for the Congo, but for how the Cold War played out globally and for the reputation of the UN. For the Congo, it resulted in over 30 years of the brutal reign of Mobutu. Can you talk about those other two things, the ramifications for the Cold War and what happened to the UN's reputation after Congo? So the UN's reputation lay in ruins after the Congo. Not only did the Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld die in the Congo crisis in a mysterious plane crash when he was en route to negotiate a ceasefire, this is after Lumumba's death, but also the Soviets regretted voting for the UN operation in the Congo. And it was it was really seen as a failure. The UN had bitten off more than it could chew. And so for the rest of the Cold War, the UN would never again try anything ambitious as its operation in the Congo. And so it stayed out of places that it might otherwise have been involved in and perhaps helped. For the US, however, its operations in Congo were viewed as a success. Specifically, the CIA's efforts to get rid of Lumumba and support Mobutu were seen as this clear Cold War win. By the narrow logic of the Cold War, this had some truth to it. You had gotten rid of a potentially pro-Soviet leader and installed a nice, pliant American dictator in his place. Once you broaden the perspective just a little bit, it becomes clear that this was actually a massive failure. If you broaden it to include the Congolese people, for instance, what you have as a result of this is 30 years of of dictatorship. If you broaden it to include stability as well, it turned out to be a long-term unstable move because Mobutu's regime collapses in 96, 97, killing millions of people in the civil war. But to answer your question about the the Cold War, I think what the Congo operation did, because it was viewed as a success internally, was it really encouraged the CIA and 
other presidents to embrace covert action. So you see the Bay of Pigs operation in 61, the US support for the coup in Chile in the 70s, and so on, you know, the support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. You can't blame this all on the Congo operation, but I think it contributed because it was seen as this success, you, you know, acting behind the scenes in unsavory ways and undemocratic ways, America could sort of tip the balance of power in key countries and prevent the communists from, from gaining a toehold. So that's, I think, an important effect of what happened in the Congo. The book is so fascinating, and I, I really only had time to scratch the surface of it. So I, I highly encourage our listeners to go out and read it. It's the Lumumba plot, the secret history of the CIA, and a Cold War assassination. Stuart Reed, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Hope you enjoy checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. This podcast is a Daily Beast production with production by Jesse Cannon and Seamus Calder. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.